So we are in the middle of talking about parallel computing. And I think we kind of stopped in, in here, in the Amdahl's law, saying that if you can, if 95% of your code would be parallelizable, then the best speed up that you can gain is 20 fold because the remaining 5% has to be sequential anyway. So 5% has to be sequential, and you can speed up the 95% to zero time by throwing in more and more processors. Um, so 100% is original task, and 5% remains. That means 20-fold difference. You look puzzled. You didn't read the slides. Uh, no, I'm not puzzled. I, I just don't see it. Sorry? I, I was just puzzled. Uh, Fuzzy. Ah, oh, you have to come closer. You have to come closer. <laughs> and I'm just searching for the right slide here. So, four times speed up in the case when 75% of the code is parallelizable. And that is maximum, because 25% remains there. Then, I think that's where we kind of thought. We can throw in more processors, but eventually there is only a limited amount of what we can gain. And then we have uh, the real uh, computer cluster, or many clusters on different continents, our applications, talk through the operating system stack, network drivers, go to the network switches, uh, go through the network, well, you can think entire, entire internet somewhere in here, and then you work up the same stack. Uh, messages come into the switches, to the network, to the operating system, and until your application. So when your application wants to talk to the application on the other node, then this is hell of a lot of work that has to happen. Right? And there is uh, two components to this network. One is uh, latency, how fast you can get the message through. And the ultimate speed is the speed of light, going one nanosecond by one nanosecond well, this piece of wire is one nanosecond, right? As we heard Grace Hopper to talk to the generals. Uh, so the further apart you push uh, the cluster, the slower um, is the, well, the, the, yeah, the slower is the latency. It takes time to get the message through. But once you start getting some, the message through, then the size of the package Will be, will be important. How big a chunk you can pass in one message. So when you start uh, talking about the communication cost model, it's really about the latency and bandwidth. Uh, latency is the key, uh, startup time plus uh, the per how many how many words or how big package you can send through in some unit of time, speed second, right? You, you, we talk about gigabit, uh, no, at home 100 megabit 
lines, right? The, the fiber optics that you can get to home. So 100 megabit per second is 10 something megabytes per second. Um, and uh, time to communicate large chunk, chunk of data is latency, startup time, plus uh, how many uh, bytes you send or bits you send in every second. And when you talk uh, about really large amounts of data, then it's uh, quicker to load them on hard disk and send the hard disks to the other side. Latency is awful, but bandwidth is uh, big. And we are actually in the trouble where we talk, uh, well, when we think about downloading lots of RNA sequencing data, which is lots of sequence reads, lots of uh, DNA sequences, or actual RNA sequences. Um, if we would like to start downloading them to here to Estonia, we are talking about several months of fully loading the network of Estonian international connections. And we can't do that very easily without giving us at least a thought about that. If you do that, then you can't download videos at the same time anymore. Right? So uh, latency and bandwidth are uh, two important aspects about the network speed. Um, I know that I have many slides, but I, I will try to stress on some, some things where I consider uh, more importance. When we have data on different processors, we somehow have to talk about how to distribute that data to other processors and what the different computers should do. Um, usually we ignore all of these input-output uh, uh, speed issues, uh, just talk about distributing data, gathering da data, um, um, kind of thing. The larger chunks of data we can aggregate together and send to one in one message, the somehow quicker it is. So when we start uh, distributing data, it's not like every bit has to be distributed. You have to somehow package it uh, in proper chunks of uh, data and calculations and gather. Uh, if it's lots of communications, then we, the, all the communications will kill the speed. Uh, so, so we talk about parallel all the time, but there are these different types of parallelism uh, happening. And the two main ones, well, basically the, we, can, we can classify the computer, uh, computing uh, types in, in this kind of array, where the two main ones are, uh, well the common one as you think is multiple instructions, so every computer runs their own instruction set, every computer, every application runs its own program software, right? Every, every computer runs their own uh, program at their own pace, at on their own data. So multiple instructions, multiple uh, processors on multiple data streams. This is uh, your standard sort of many computers, many uh, tasks. Uh, there is alternative where there is a single instruction that all the computers execute at the same time the same instruction. Uh, just on multiple data streams. Um, so that uh, you have 
multiple data, but you always do exactly the same operations at the same speed, sort of matrix vector multiplications of whatever you uh, want to do. So single processor, single data is this single core type of uh, uh, operations, multiple processors, multiple computers um, on multiple data. This is the, the massive parallelism. And then these are kind of processor arrays. There is also kind of an exotic systolic arrays type, very single data stream, multiple instruction, multiple instructions. And this uh, just copied from the Wikipedia kind of, you send the data stream through, but it goes through very dedicated uh, processors in parallel and possibly even doing some sort of multiple inputs, multiple outputs kind of calculations. So for some cases where you have very specific task to do all the time, it's possible to come up with the, these kinds of architectures, uh, but they really run exactly the same code on exactly kind of the similar type of data. You can't reprogram these kind of things uh, easily. Uh, so we have multiple computers usually running their own stuff, right? They, are, they have their own operating system, they have their own applications, and then they talk to each other. Um, in this talking, there is uh, different ways. One is to pass the messages. I talk, you listen, you talk, I listen, or we talk all at the same time, somehow we pass messages. Um, and the other type is where we share the common address space. We share the common memory, so what I learn, I put in your memory, right? And you can access that from that memory. Um, so every processor has access to the main memory, and when you have these multi-core uh, processors, then you share the same memory. Um, this shared address space can be actually made uh, larger, so you can uh, have distributed memory where every computer has their own chunk of memory, but somehow it's organized so that it looks as if the common shared memory. Truth is that my processor in here has local memory in here. How can I access this processor's memory in there, these computers? So it's somehow made available through the operating system Yes, I can address as if it's within my uh, memory, but of course it would be slower to go there, fetch the data, fetch it, bring it back, so that you can calculate. That's why it's called non-uniform memory access. So you share the same address space, you write the code as if you have lots of memory, you share the address space, but the memory is distributed. And that means that uh, it will become non-uniform access. Memory that is close to me is fast, memory that is far from me is slower, right? Like caching type of memory. Um, so in this normal multi-core processor, you have the symmetric multiprocessor and the one single uh, memory uh, to your CPU with the multiple cores, so that is the standard stuff. It, it doesn't mean that the standard is easy. There will be other types of problems. Which, which processor writes exactly at the same memory location and how this is avoided that there are collisions, uh, this is an entirely different story. 
but across multiple computers we, you can uh, still share the same address space or so that every machine has their own address space and then you uh, pass the messages. Um, so this is this non-uniform memory architecture kind of uh, you have multiple processors on the same bus talking to one memory but then you address some other computer uh, as if it was the single distributed shared memory space. So you can buy these clusters with a shared memory uh, model. Which means that some of the tasks that you have programmed for a shared memory you can easily deploy on this, uh, more easily deploy on this shared memory model. So, I think this was from last year, uh, spring uh, 13, uh, localized commercial, but uh, the register was having the piece about AMD um, providing a new parallel processing breakthrough, and basically what they upcoming covered processor, I haven't uh, checked, can you buy this from AMD or not, but the principle how they, what, what was proposed in there, is this, uh, this one in here. So uniform memory access is multiple CPUs, single memory. Non-uniform memory access, uh, you can have... Um, well, I think in here the GPU had, it had its own memory, but now what, what they are proposing is that CPUs and GPUs are talking to the same memory uh, bus somehow that they share the same memory. Your CPU writes something in the memory and GPU can access the same memory slot. Um, so these, are, these architectures are, and, and as you heard uh, last time, so then GPUs are somehow, um, can be made uh, faster on specific um, compute tasks um, and uh, cheaper and general processing units. Uh, so, shared memory, um, multiple instruction, multiple data, kind of message passing, or non-uniform shared memory access. But your standard thinking is that it's, everything is massively parallel, uh, every node has their own memory, every node has their own address space, every node has their own local disk and networks and every node runs their own operating system. And when you go to the cloud, then you want the nodes to be uh, sort of like uh, fault tolerant so that one node drops off, you just plug it off, you bring in a new computer, it gets a new task, and your cloud is shrinking and growing as you wish. In this case, of course, like if you think of the Google kind of operations or Amazons, then there has to be some redundancy so that when one node uh, in, these, in these scales, computers die, the memories get false, and one computer uh, faulting should not pre uh, prevent the entire cluster from working. Right? And in the cloud, so lots of engineering has to go into this, how to do the uh, error, how to achieve the error tolerance, that the same data, the same tasks could be done by two, three independent computers, so if one dies, the other takes over. Uh, 
the high-end systems uh, also talk about these clusters where you, you buy instead of a, a one computer you, you buy the cluster um, the word cluster could have multiple different meanings so in this cluster architecture you have redundancy so that you're instead of one computer you buy two that runs on parallel does exactly the same task all the time if one gets a fault the other takes over right? and then you have time to replace the other one and bring it back to get the uh, to get the redundancy in the and error tolerance in your operations but this kind of physical um, pairing uh, becomes more expensive uh, so <coughs> so there are Now asking uh, how to connect the multiple computers in the network. So in here, every node sees the other node. And of course, when you have the fifth node, you have four connections to make. The sixth node, you have six connections to make. So it doesn't scale quadratic number of wires in the cluster. You can build kind of star that one is in the middle, knows, sees everybody. So you have two hops from this to there. But then this node in the middle becomes somehow the bottleneck uh, in the network. You can start building some kind of grid structures, like two-layered, uh, two-dimensional grid. This bounds the degree of connections. So every node has exactly up to four connections. So four wires going out from the single computer, not more. Um, On this kind of structures, you could think of uh, how to add together numbers. So every every computer has their own whatever data or numbers. You can pass messages one in one dimension, in the other dimension. So you get the sum of all the numbers in square root of n steps, because square root of n processors is one dimension plus square root of the n in here. So square root of n this is the speed by which you can pass through all the nodes in this wiring scheme. Um, slightly better is uh, what is called a hypercube. So it's uh, a high dimensional um, cube. So this is three dimensional build up um, and uh, one, two, three dimensions. So this is a logarithmic number of steps to do this adding along these multiple dimensions. The hypercube structures will scale from the three dimensions to four dimensions into six-dimensional hypercube. Can you see six-dimensional cubing here? Uh, in three-dimensional, every node has three dimensions, three wires going out. And in here, every node should have one, two, three, four, five, six, six wires going out. And uh, this means that there is uh, one, two, three hops to get there. In here will be six hops to get to reach from zero, 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 zero to one, 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 one. Uh, uh, six dimensions, maximum six hops to, to get from one node to the other. Um, there could be some 
you have see, well, there could be some uh, sort of central networks that uh, multiple machines talk to the same switches, but somehow, well, these kinds of structures, right? This is um, um, to get more structure, uh, you can start thinking about the tree like organization. In here, 128 way fat tree, sort of. 128 nodes should be somewhere, and then the, then the network switches, how they're organized, how many wires there have to be in the network. Um, and probably there could be more than, if it's factory, maybe there should be more than one way to pass message from one node to the other. Maybe there is two or three ways that go in parallel um, from one node to the other. But there there's going to be lots of wires. That's for sure. Wireless does not help because the air space is also limited on the same frequencies. You can't, how many parallel frequencies can you generate? So wireless is not the, I haven't, at least I haven't heard any case where there would be some wireless communications within the clusters. Um, so lots of wires in there. Okay, um, let me see what's... We, we keep talking about this all the time, just reduce speed, uh, reduce time. Do we need new parallel languages? Yes and no. There are definitely these parallel computing uh, abstract models. And you... How many of you did this Benson's task? How many of you tried to do the parallel? So... Can you write parallel code now, based on these? What, what were the commands to get things in parallel? Well, well, I, I have taken the parallel computing course in concern. You have taken. Yeah. Okay. So it's easy for you, but, but for the rest, so so what are the parallel paradigms and parallel languages? So the standard languages have kind of extensions to parallelize their code. So, uh, and these extensions uh, then to talk about how to divide work, which things to do in parallel. Um, um, okay, there is uh, bragging, no parallel computing is not differ uh, difficult, it's just different. But of course, uh, it's, there are subtle details that can be uh, making it hard. And of course, assembler programming is not hard, is it? How many of you have done this assembler programming? You have the courses, okay. Uh, okay, um, let me see. I think I have this, uh, some code examples uh, coming. But let's take the sorting. You remember, at the beginning of the course we talked about merge sort. So we start from singletons, as long as we get them sorted pairwise, Two pairs can be sorted in, in the merge into the four sorted values. And once you have these two sorted arrays, you can merge them together. So, of course, you can distribute the work in the uh, four processors, two and one. So we can... How long time does it take? Um, there is... Um, There is 
ON to do this one merger, but there is uh, log of N steps only half time, half time, half time. So when we think of the execution time along this one uh, uh, steps through the data, then it's uh, n and half and quarter, etc. So in fact, per processor, we spend linear time. So we, we can take the merge sort, which is n log n, overall work, but because we don't need to do these in, on the same processor, just looking at one processor, and we can observe that the time is uh, n plus n half, n quarter, n eight. So linear time to get things sorted. So n log n algorithm executed on parallel gives us linear time sorting algorithm in time span. Um, so this is uh, how this is uh, calculated that you get linear time uh, time span. Uh, but we didn't do anything to the algorithm, so uh, we took n log n time span and executed in linear time by throwing in more processors. Overall work is exactly the n log n. Parallel computing cannot reduce the overall work, it just parallelizes it, just gives it to many computers. Uh, so linear time sorting, but it's possible to get sorting done in uh, square of log n uh, time span. Uh, I don't have that algorithm. Well, I haven't looked up the algorithm exactly. But it's, it's doable to do in um, square of logarithm um, n. So you can take the standard algorithm and just try to parallelize it um, as you want. Um, this framework from the textbook says that we can have parallel portions. Um, par no, we can parallelize a loop so that every loop step is parallelized, or you can spawn, like recursively spawn the new uh, thread um, and then synchronize answers. Like Fibonacci number, recursive uh, program would say that. Okay, uh, calculate the Fibonacci number for n minus 1, you get one value, then you calculate the other value, and then you add them together. In here, it's just said that these two, these two tasks are independent. You say that you do a parallel this one, I keep doing this one, and I need to synchronize, I need to wait until both have finished, I synchronize, and then I can answer x plus y. Parallel loop says that for every id uh, in the loop, well, for uh, in the array, okay, the notation may be not so, so good in here, but uh, cycle from 1 to n, every variable is set to 0. You can do all these in parallel. You just set all the variables to 0 on parallel. And in here, for every i in parallel, you calculate another loop to get uh, this yi calculated. 
Um, so you execute these loops in parallel. So in this framework, indeed, you just have some extra keywords, parallel portion for the loop, or spawn the new subroutine in parallel, and synchronize. Uh, in here, the synchronization happens after the loop, somehow, when the loop is over, and I guess then you don't need to explicitly say that synchronize. Wait until the loop completes. Uh, you can take, uh, uh, well, clearly you can see the recursive programs in here. You can just say that one part will have to be parallelized, uh, spawn the new process, and then the new one starts again, uh, recursively keeps uh, doing the smaller tasks. Somehow we ignore the question how many CPUs there is altogether, how many processes there is. You just try to do it in parallel. If there are a new computer that takes a, uh, the task, then the operating system takes care of this parallel part. And uh, if you run out of the CPUs, then the last ones will have to do uh, wait until the, until the CPU can calculate the stuff. So in this framework, really, you can see that it's, it's not complicated, but you can imagine that the underlying uh, language implementations, operating systems, have to support these parallelism uh, frameworks. And then we run into troubles when we can have races. Um, race is something where multiple computers trying to do something in parallel, and they now it will start depending in which order they complete their task, you may end up having different answers. So, if you do par in parallel, uh, two tasks in parallel, you take increase, you increment the value of x by 1. If you do this twice in parallel, then what is the output that you will print out in there? <laughs> and that's what you wish this code to return every time. Zero plus one, one plus one, and you want the answer to be one. No, well, if I run it in parallel, then all the scientists are in parallel. Then it depends. Uh, did the first parallel part already complete and write uh, increment already back in x so that the next one fetches 1 or 0 as the starting point. How can you control this uh, time dependence in there? How, you can't control that one thread somehow completes earlier than the other starts. Well, this is a so stupid small example, but you can think of the slightly bigger problems that uh, one execution was maybe very, very quick. It wasn't, the code wasn't even properly distributed yet. One is first is already completing, and the last one only then starts over. Right. Not two, but you go this bit into 2,000. Right. And then it becomes very problematic. If, if you do this from one to 2,000, what is the proper answer in here? Maybe it's a bad code. Sure. But in principle, if there are dependencies, then there will be races. Uh, what happens? Which which parts execute at which speed? 
and, and, and all of these parallel talk uh, about how to formalize everything has to somehow take into account that, that everything that can happen may happen. Or, or maybe we can fix the program to work in the, in the way that if it is feasible by the code in somehow that uh, one execution that is kind of feasible and we stick to that one Oh, what is the term for this? There is a specific term, which I have forgotten now. But somehow, uh, what is a feasible execution, one of these feasible execution paths to serialize, to take the parallel code, but to make it serialized. So is it serializable to some path that you would execute in clear time order, and you would get the parallel code uh, running. So if it's serializable, then it's good enough that one of these serial executions is somehow returned. Uh, the race thing uh, brings up the question about how do you read the same uh, memory access? Is it exclusive read? One CPU will write, uh, read the value at the time only exclusively one will have the right uh, read to uh, only one has the right to write or is it so that uh, you can uh, concurrently read multiple ones can read at the same time but only one has a right to write at any given time point exclusive write uh, permissions concurrent read exclusive write um, or concurrent read, concurrent write. If you have concurrent write, then it's very hard all write at the same time. So what is the final, what is the last answer in this case? If you, if you write on concurrent system. So this is uh, how the, some of these will be actually, well, actually on the computer uh, CPU hardware, uh, there, there is one of these uh, implementations. Of course, this somehow is the stupidest, that exclusively only one can read, but everybody can write at the same time. So that sounds kind of silly, but yeah. Well, maybe it can be used on some kind of statistics, for example, using multi <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, in the lowest level, I think there is kind of exclusive right uh, that is somehow um, only one can write at the uh, single time. There is actually a there is a actually assembler level operation, so-called compare and swap, or small variants of that. You can uh, read about this, but this is kind of when it starts writing, it. Uh, uh, looks at the, what was the previous value. If uh, the value was uh, okay in the sense that you can indeed write, then you write swap the value. Yeah. So when you, in the lowest level, that when you start writing, you make sure that it's atomic process. When you, when you check what is there, 
and you overwrite it, that nobody else can can do it. Um, in well, both can start checking: is it okay to write my value? Um, when one uh, one does this, you don't want a situation both kind of uh, try to check can I write, but then they don't agree which one gets a right to write. So this is a somehow made made atomic operation. Uh, And especially tricky, uh, these things will be especially tricky when you start talking about who has the right to write a new a pointer to this location. You do some fancy self-palacing tree and you need to swap the pointers, you make the binary search tree node to point to the Right, but somehow you you make you try to write this in there, but some other CPUs, some other process, repoints it to some other location. You don't want this to happen, right? So you have to make sure that you have the full right to this location and then swap the value. And the other could have started, but if they could not complete, then they give back the error message. So that thread must do something else. Uh, so this kind of uh, low-level implementation is sort of protecting in the memory uh, rights, actually. And uh, there are many kind of like, you can make a simple stack, add new values, where is the stack pointer, what is on top of the stack? I, I add a new value, I need to increase the pointer. If many processors try to add right on top of stack, then it's important that your stack uh, grows coherently, right? Uh, and then you can start uh, uh, the keeping the counter, what is the exact value at the moment, sort of like uh, counting that the first, second, third, etc. somehow. Uh, even the single counter, right, counting things, if you do it in parallel like we did, you do 2,000 times you try to count. If you keep the increasing the counter multiple times, you want the counter to be valid value all the time. Um, so this is uh, the protection on the, on the assembler level and built on top of this kind of elementary assembler level operations in the CPU, you can start making the higher level abstractions. Uh, in the large data structures, you would lock some regions. You put the lock, like in the in the binary search tree, you would say that, oh, I lock this node from up and down so that no process comes from below, no process comes from top. I can work with this part of the tree, and then I do whatever I want, right? But the locking means that other processes will wait. They will have to wait. They can't complete their stuff. They can't pass this region that we, I'm going to deal with. Right? Uh, so you better make sure that the locking is for a short period of time. And uh, it doesn't... And the, the really tricky part there is to... You lock certain certain region, you start working. Other process starts to wait for you, 
But then you discover that, oh, I need to also, to complete my stuff, I need to get something changed in, in there. But other process already holds a lock on that. And then you become deadlocked. Both are waiting for the other to complete. Uh, so deadlocks are like stalling forever. And of course, you have to make sure that uh, this parallel code never deadlocks. That it will have, eventually it will resolve the situation and both, uh, all the processes can, will have a chance to complete eventually. Or, maybe you want to show that every process has to complete in a certain time frame. It's not good enough that one uh, process is kept waiting forever, right? Everybody else keeps doing their stuff, one process still waits and waits and waits and waits, even though potentially, eventually it could finish uh, their calculations. So locking uh, is kind of uh, the standard answer you, where you um, you lock certain regions in memory, they have to be non-blocking so that some process can always advance, that some, some calculations can always happen, that it's not the entire deadlock, uh, when nobody can advance anymore, and then uh, wait-free, sort of like every thread will have the chance to eventually finish. Um, then, locks are something which is a very uh, coarse-level uh, operations, like in relation database, I will lock this relation on this tuple for myself, nobody else can touch this, and then you keep touching it and uh, freeing it up. Uh, the, the kind of research where we had Eric Rupert from Canada, um, he has some uh, Estonian origins, but uh, he's researching in Canada about log-free data structures. So that you can think of, the, of these uh, binary search trees, um, well, the simple list structures, uh, the simple stack structures, but binary search trees, one stream of research that we did in the course was this, uh, was this uh, um, small space or, or the, the, the smallest space implementation of data structures uh, without pointers. Um, but in here, the stream of research asks how to make these data structures dynamic so that they never need to use locks. That your code can always run. And uh, the only thing that will protect you is this CAS compare and swap operation on the low level. Your, your code just runs through the data structure, executes all the time, and uh, only this one protects uh, that there is no pointer um, messing around, that you don't get dangling po pointers anywhere. So on the, on the multiple processors, multiple uh, cores sharing the same memory, uh, this is a very important uh, question how to achieve dynamic data structures that, where you don't use locking, that are lock-free data structures.
Okay, um, some problems are more easy to parallelize, um, some are embarrassingly parallelizable, embarrassingly parallel, uh, you have just many tasks, you run them on parallel, they don't depend on each other at all. Sometimes dynamic programming is such that you can parallelize. Um, I think in our examples in the course when we talked about uh, um, at least when we talked about this uh, matrix chain multiplication, I think in there to go to the chunks of memory n plus one, one longer, then you could run all of those independent from each other because you have all the shorter ranges calculated, optimized for. So you could do those in parallel. But in the case of dynamic programming for the the string edit distance, I think uh, it's, that would not be so easily parallelizable because you depended on the, not the entire row or column could be done on parallel. You, you, you depended along the column as well. Maybe there is some way to calculate in a different order, like uh, diagonally, fill in the gaps, but uh, then this takes the algorithm. Do you follow me or not? In the in the string edit distance, we filled the first column, first row, and then started to fill in uh, these values because they depended on these neighboring cells, right? So to get the down. Uh, it's like a serial process, whatever, somehow, I've never seen this, I've never tried this, but somehow you could say that but if you could organize the calculation something like this, at least these will not depend on each other, right? Maybe you can write those things in parallel, and then you, then you go to the next, um, so that you start really give these in parallel. You can probably write the code in the way that calculates in this way in parallel. Right? But dynamic programming types of things can be sometimes parallelized on uh, parallel architectures. Uh, uh, Benson and Eero have been working on some of these very large-scale linear models which have, for example, used weather forecasting. And um, if I remember it correct, then uh, on this Titan supercomputer, they were able to calculate uh, like billion of variables which is like a terabyte of data in one second. Billion of variables calculated on parallel within one second. I can't even imagine reading that much data from the disk. So somehow it has, uh, has to be organized uh, properly. Okay, um, let me see if, if I want to talk about um, um, 
about communications. So when you have multiple computers that need to run some task, then maybe you want every process to get exactly the same data, and this is this broadcasting model, that like you broadcast to everybody, like TV is a broadcasting uh, environment, so one talks, everybody listens, or I want to gather something from each one of you, and then you gather all of this in a single location, and then you can do something. So broadcasting and gathering. Uh, scattering, I have many tasks. I have to distribute it to each one uh, uh, separate data. So scattering the data to pieces or all gathering. So you each have to listen to each other so that everybody gets a complete picture of all the data values from original sources. So uh, broadcasting, gathering, scattering, all gathering. Very simple uh, uh, concepts, right? And then, of course, it will start depending how you, how do, which way you have organized your computer. When you start broadcasting, uh, the first one talks to the. Why is it here? Two neighbors. No one. I, um, I think in here you have to broadcast from one. You broadcast to every node, and then on on each dimension, in this tree, what is this, um, um, x1 talks to x, x1, x2, then it uh, sends to x3, then it sends to x5, and in this step x1 has talked to x, x3, x3 now has that value and talks to x7, so basically in this way, in logarithmic number of steps, you get original value sent to every other um, CPU. Um, gathering, scattering, so uh, uh, again, um, scattering and then uh, gathering together. All gathering, how many steps does it take? So um, I'm not going to waste your time on this. Matrix vector multiplications, um, you may want to split your matrices um, in chunks, either row-wise, uh, and every, everyone gets the entire column. So then you can distribute work so that uh, um, you need to replicate the vector to each one and one, one row from the matrix. Um, so that um, you get the new values calculated. Uh, matrix multiplication, uh, like uh, different uh, ways to multiply matrices. If you have a larger matrix, you can make it into smaller chunks to get uh, to calculate the uh, first quadrant matrix R. You need A and E plus B and F. A and D plus B and F. So you need to distribute um, A, E, B and F, and then you can calculate this uh, this part in there. So taking the larger problem, thinking what needs to be scattered to different processors, how do you organize the work, and then uh, letting every uh, computer to know the, exactly that part of the uh, data, and fetching, giving back the answers about one uh, sub matrix.
So this is a, the simple way, which is a, in cubic time there are slightly faster ways, but you can do these in parallel and you can gain in the parallel speed. Okay, um, of course when you start doing some parallel processing then your algorithm design questions are very relevant. Efficiency, what you gain. Debugging is made more complex of course. So the question about what are the debugging environments, can you do it more easily or not, is uh, important. How much you can reuse existing code and what is the life cycle of the code. So you, you can imagine the next generation parallel computers, you throw out the current ones and in three years you buy new ones, can you recycle the previous code. Uh, what was interesting to me when Benson was talking was that Yes, we know that computer life cycle is about three, four years, but the code life cycles are 10, 20 years. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, I think I, I skipped over the, about the decomposition. So basically, you take the big problem and you have to decompose it to smaller parts that you can throw to different computers, right? Sometimes the decomposition is perfectly parallel. They, the parts are totally independent. You get perfectly parallel thing. Sometimes it, it depends on the domain, how, how you split the things, the data. Sometimes you can uh, decompose the control method so that somehow not the data but uh, different uh, execution paths, different control paths are given to different uh, uh, processes. Um, and of course all kinds of hybrid approaches could be there. So in the do domain, back to this uh, uh, matrix multiplication, then you can have these different tasks that uh, Calculate the different matrix multiplication subparts. Maybe you can organize it in a slightly different way. Uh, there are the differences in here. Uh, A2, 2, B2, I, I see at least one, some small differences in here. Maybe you, you somehow decompose it slightly, slightly differently. Uh, it all seems to me that exactly the same amount of work needs to be done, but different, different decomposition. Maybe you can gain by different decomposition um, something um, significant. This is uh, data from some uh, Lake Superior, maybe you, like weather forecasting, maybe you need to calculate some properties along the uh, lake, say water temperatures, surface water temperature, for example, then you decompose the large lake into a problem into the smaller parts, Maybe in the middle of the lake, uh, everything is much more homogeneous and your, uh, your grid structure can be more coarse, your triangles can be larger in the middle, but close to the coastline, it becomes much more tricky, right? In the coast, maybe much smaller grid is, uh, is needed when you predict something. Um, you can split the tasks randomly, like in here, or you can split it, of course, in some sensible way, so that every computer, every CPU gets its own chunk that is somehow relevant to this CPU. You take the big problem, 
you try to decompose it to equal parts so that within one computer there is minimal talking to the other computers in there or, or sort of shuffling the data between. So this is bad, this is good, right? Um, so partitioning of the data appropriately by the model to different uh, CPUs uh, can be done uh, carefully. So decompose a big problem into parts and then uh, planning which parts, uh, which parts of those uh, tasks need to be run on the single uh, computer. There is still lots of crosstalk in here. You need to, to calculate some value. You need to understand. You need to get the data from the neighboring cells. But in this case, the neighbors are in the same um, on the same computer. Most of the times, so you can calculate in here. When you come to this edge in here, then you need to ask, "Hey, what is your next cycle's sort of data value?" Then you need to talk to the other computer, but to minimize the talking to the other computers. So that's why it has been said that minimum edge cut, minimum way to cut the graph uh, so that there is minimal number of crosstalk between the nodes uh, to minimize the communications. Take the large problem, try to decompose it to parts so that the communication overhead is minimized. Everything that happens in the same computer can be done so much faster. And the need to talk to somebody else over the slow network. So the tasks can be parallelized in reasonable chunks, either by data or by some control mechanism. And uh, it, it's better to think, plan ahead, how to split the task to, to multiple computers. Um, and of course, this homework task was just from these uh, simulations on parallel. These are kind of easy, easier problems. Okay. Uh, good decomposition or good uh, leadership in how do you calculate things, of course, can help improve the performance and uh, is really uh, key in these parallelizing uh, questions. How do you parallelize uh, what chunks are done in parallel? And uh, we need to minimize the communications as, as possible, because communications are slow. But there is a lot of uh, infrastructure by now uh, that can be used uh, for these people who develop um, MPI applications or uh, different uh, different frameworks for parallelization. Uh, speaking of the different frameworks, you have probably heard about the Hadoop or sort of map reduce type of parallelism. So you have your your data and problems, and then you map it to sub problems, and then. Um, get the answers and then reduce the task back to get the answers and then just uh, uh, bring back all the data or different uh, subtasks and then you reduce it back to the single node. What happens when one task is not completed? This computer is for some reason faulty or the task was too big you will never uh, get uh, hear back from that. Maybe somebody switched off accidentally. <laughs> the switch. 
then the planner that has distributed the work to many tasks that doesn't hear back from one has to somehow recover from that. And then you don't want to recalculate everything that is already there, then this kind of uh, framework where you map to subtasks, gather the answers, if something goes wrong, then it has to understand that something went wrong first. And the second, it better do something about that. Uh, reassign this job to somebody else, some other node, maybe some faster node, or Further, I don't know if you can if MapReduce would support any further reduction of the task. Um, but this MapReduce has been many times said that oh, you can MapReduce big problems into the cloud so that on the cloud you have just more uh, more computers and then you can uh, you can uh, solve larger tasks. But in these cases, I think the Mutual communications usually are tried to, uh, probably are kept minimal or if, if any. Uh, okay, um, anything about this parallel part? I don't feel very uh, strong about this parallelism myself because I was trained before the parallelism came in. But actually, they were parallel computers, but uh, it's always. Uh, you have to keep working on this. You're happy? If you are, then we can switch topics.